Our Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Father, for the beautiful weather and for the chance to be together today in our, our time of fellowship. And as we sit now before you with the word open before us, we thank you, Father, for the chance to study and to learn, to hear from you through the words of James, to consider our lives again in light of the word and to take an inventory of where we are and then perhaps move forward in a new way. We thank you, Lord, that you are good to give us this opportunity week after week to sustain this church, to sustain those who serve and support it, to make it possible, Father, for us to continue meeting. We thank you for that. And, Father, I stand before you as the servant, ready to speak on your behalf, but I ask, Father, that you would remove those things in my mind or heart which are not of you, and then only that would, only that, that you have given me would come forth and it would be to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as always, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, looking at James chapter 3, right at the end of 3, but then going into 4 today. He's moving forward now. He's taking a bit of a turn, not terribly different from where he's been, but he's moving forward now in this larger discussion of speech toward the issue of wisdom. So today's topic largely rests on the issue of wisdom. And as we begin, I want to be clear about how James moves from his earlier discussion of self-control over our tongues into this discussion of wisdom. Let's keep it in its context, but the transition is actually quite simple to follow. It's really quite straightforward. First, remember that the whole letter is about showing our faith through works, often in the face of tests or trials. That's the general theme of the letter. And then remember that when we reached chapter 3, we were listening to James discuss gaining control over ungodly speech. That was the general theme of this chapter. And then look at verse 13. Where we go today in verse 13, he makes a small pivot, a little switch. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Well, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. He moves his focus here to those in the church who would attempt to show their wisdom and their spiritual maturity simply through impressive words. You ever met someone like this? They want to show you how wise they are, and their way of showing you their wisdom is with their speech. They're talking the talk. But James's concern is not with how well you talk the talk. His concern is with how well you walk the walk, as the saying goes. He wants you to demonstrate, he wants us to demonstrate wisdom through our actions. In the day that this was written, it was common for wise men of the day, Greek or Jewish, to demonstrate their wisdom through impressive oratory. That was the style of the day. And the culture generally equated wisdom with the ability to pontificate on various subjects, various matters for hours on end. You, you see evidence of this in the book of Acts in places where it's obvious that the Greeks had these places in the city, particularly in Athens, where men would go and they would spend their entire day just debating topics of the day. And the, the, the challenge was who could out-orate the other. They would engage in these rhetorical arguments or these debates to show off their skill, but in the course of these debates or these arguments, they would often twist words or change meaning or find some way to alter this, the, the, this discussion so that it would bring the discussion to where they wanted it to go. This idea of twisting words. There's a story of an old miser who had no friends in this life, but for his doctor and his pastor and his lawyer. So when he was preparing to die on his deathbed, he called those three men to his side and he said, I've always heard it said you can't take it with you, but I'm determined 
to prove otherwise. He said, I've got $90,000 left. It's under this bed, under my mattress. I want each of you men to take a third of it. Take your 30000 put it in an envelope. And when you're standing over my grave, as I'm being lowered in the casket, I want you to each throw your, throw, throw your envelope into the grave with me. I want to take that money with me. So at some point soon after he dies, and at the funeral, each of the men are there as they were asked to be with their respective envelope, and they each throw it in and walk away. As they're walking away from the gravesite, they begin to talk, and first the pa- pastor speaks, and he says, you know, guys, I just my conscience won't let me do this. I've got to confess. I, I didn't put all the money in the envelope. I only put 20000 I kept ten because we're building a church and needed the money. And at that point, the doctor felt a prompting to speak up, and he said, you know, I have to say that's not... You're not the only one who did that. I, I took out 20000 because I'm building a new office and needed the money. And at that point, the lawyer just stopped in his tracks and looked at both the men. He was aghast, absolutely beside himself. He says, I'm shocked. I'm just surprised. I'm amazed that you men would be so dishonest and go against the last wishes of our friend. I'll have you know, I wrote him a personal check for the full amount. That's twisting words. That's taking the meaning and just twisting the words enough to get what you want, right? Remember how he began the chapter, the very beginning of this chapter? He said, don't press yourself. We shouldn't press ourselves into a teaching role. Well, in fact of the matter, he has not really left the issue of teaching, not as a whole. It's still behind the scenes here, because when you think about what a teacher does, a teacher is someone who imparts wisdom or understanding through speech. And James said earlier, don't press yourself into that role because you risk a harsher judgment if your tongue convicts you in the course of your teaching because of the way you choose to teach. But it's more than just conveying wisdom. Remember, James says the problem is, as a teacher, you're going to be judged more strictly not only for what you say, but also for how you live. Because a teacher has to be godly in two ways. They have to be godly in their speech and what they say and, and what they teach. But secondly, in their living. They have to live up to the standards that they are pronouncing to others out of God's word. So James asked the church, you think you're wise? You think you have understanding? Wise. Wise means in the Greek, moral insight. It's a certain kind of wisdom. It's the ability to discern in issues of moral conduct, to know right from wrong, and to make judgments about how God perceives things in terms of right or wrong. That's what wisdom means in the sense of the Greek word that's used here. And then the word understanding means to have an expertise in something, to be an expert or an intellectual in some area. So let me reword verse 13 in my own words, just based on the meaning of the Greek. You could say James is asking the question this way. You all think, see, it's in Texan. You all think you could be a teacher or a leader, as they understood teachers, and speak for what God has to say concerning right and wrong? You think you're an expert? In righteousness or in godliness? That's the question he poses to those who have begun to see themselves in that way. And then to that question, James provides a challenge at the end of that verse. He says, well, then show your wisdom and your understanding through good behavior in deeds done in humility. In deeds done in humility. Do you see the two parts there to the command? He says, first of all, you don't just... Practice wisdom and understanding through words. Someone who says they are wise or they are understanding and then only makes that claim through what they can speak, they're just talking the talk, they're not walking the walk. Faith is an action, not a concept. It's the same problem here. 
It's a way of life. It's a requirement that there be action in following to what you say or to what you say about yourself. So if you're wise and you're understanding, let me see it. The Jewish Christians in this day would have seen, it would seem, based on this letter, were still trapped in a kind of pharisaical view of wisdom and understanding. Do you remember from the Gospels how the Pharisees took to understanding their own wisdom? Matthew, in his Gospel, uh, records a scene in which Jesus speaks to the crowds about these men in chapter 23. Verse 1, he says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now that refers to them assuming a position of authority as teachers. That's what the chair of Moses refers to. Think of it as a chair that whoever sits in it is by, by definition your teaching leader. We have a similar kind of idea today, right? We don't have the chair of Moses. What do we have? The pulpit. You might think of it in similar ways. You think, and so let's change the language of what James is saying and, and put it in the context of a Pharisee or us today. He's saying, you think you're the guy who stands here and teaches or in a Bible study? You think you're the one who can teach in a Bible study or in, your other, in the home or in some other context? He says, okay, then show it through deeds done in humility. And to the Pharisees, Jesus says, they seat themselves in the chair of Moses. And then in verse 3, he says, therefore, all they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and then do not do them. That's the problem James is looking to solve in the life of these Jewish Christians. He's saying they're talking about matters of righteousness and godliness, but that's not the same thing as being godly or righteous. And if we think we're wise in certain matters of, of living or in righteousness, but we can't actually bring ourselves to live that way, then we're only fooling ourselves. We're being pharisaical. The second part of his commandment there was to do these things in humility, to perform these deeds in the, te- the term in my Bible was gentleness of wisdom. But that term means in Greek humility combined with a submission or a sense of submitting to authority. So if you put the two together, you're talking about someone who is gentle and loving. They're not prideful. They're not arrogant. They're self-controlled. They're not rude. They're not critical. You put all of these elements together and it's someone who understands the truth. They live it in their own life. But it's all wrapped in humility and submission to God. Not out of some prideful arrogance that they figured it out. And when you're as smart as me, you'll figure it out too. So the opening verse here sets the positive example. But true to James's letter, the rest of the chapter takes the other side of the coin and says, what happens when we're not doing those things? What does it look like? In verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, we need to read a little between the lines here to understand why he's raised this topic. And by that I mean he's writing to certain people. More than likely he's heard things about what's happening in their churches and as a leader he is addressing them. What do you think he's heard? Well, from the text, it would appear that some leaders or teachers in the early Jewish Christian church had been seeking after teaching or leadership positions, which are really one and the same, 
out of a selfish ambition. And when people seek for leadership or teaching positions out of a selfish ambition, they inevitably become competitors in this race for recognition. And then James says that leads to bitter jealousies, to allegiances, various kinds of evil come out of that kind of competition. And he alludes to exactly this kind of rancor and this disunity. He says in verse 14, they are acting and speaking arrogantly and lying against the truth. Now, arrogance here is the inevitable result of selfish ambition and jealousy. It's inevitable. When people start to see each other as competitors for the sake of being declared the wisest or the leader or the teacher, that is inevitably going to lead to an arrogance that stems out of that desire to be seen in that light. And you can easily imagine, in any context, you can imagine various men, perhaps even women, starting to seek for positions in church leadership. And as the Bible expects, anyone who is going to take a position of leadership should also be a teacher of God's word. Paul says that in Titus 1.9 and 1 Timothy 3.2. So those are expectations. They go hand in hand. And then these ambitious people begin to compete. What is going to be the basis for their competition? How are they going to make these comparisons with one another? On what basis do they say, I'm the one who should have the role? Well, more than likely, it's going to be on the basis of their wisdom in some context. I know more. I'm more mature. I'm more experienced. And, but then it becomes a mess because you now start debating who knows what and comparing who knows more about something. It's kind of a rhetoric now all of a sudden. And in their day, in James's day, it probably centered around the things they knew in their day, which was the law and the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament hadn't been written at all by the time James wrote this letter. His letter is the first letter of the New Testament chronologically. They're Jewish by heritage and culture, so they're probably arguing over the same things Jews always argued over. And he says that was the wrong motive. Men harbored hatred, he said, bitter jealousies, factions probably developed, camps, one against another, in competition, and there's bitter jealousy around all of that. And James says when you get to that situation, the next thing in line, the next thing that happens is disorder in the body, disunity in the body. And every evil thing comes from that. He's arguing here that the source for degeneration within the body begins with ungodly speech, driven by selfish ambition and arrogance, ultimately self-serving, ultimately about a selfish interest in gaining something for self in the context of the body, and it disintegrates the body. Now, I know there are other ways in which the body of Christ can be split, but as I started to think about his chain of events that he describes, I had to ask myself, have I ever seen any other way in which a body is, is split? Well, there's been times when a pastor falls into sin, or there's been times when there's some other kind of you know, disagreement about the building campaign, or you know, there's any number of things right, that come along and get people upset at one another. But if you really break those down to where they go, eventually, if you logically break them down, they come down to ungodly speech and selfish ambitions, jealousies, disputes. It's the process all over again every time you see it. Why? Because we put our own interests ahead of God's interests in those discussions. It's about winning. Winning positions of authority, winning recognition, winning praise, winning an argument, winning something. Rather than actually winning people for Christ. And James points out that this kind of wisdom, and he uses the term in quotes, I would argue, it's, it's ironic. He says this kind of wisdom is not from above. You're not operating, we're not operating under God's guidance and counsel when we do these things. It's actually coming from a demonic source. And look at the words he compares. Worldly, natural, demonic. He's using those three words synonymously. They're equal words. 
that if something is of the world, it is not of God. If something is of a natural source, like Paul talks about the natural man versus the spiritual man, it is not of God. If something is demonic, it is not of God. Those three are all equated. So when we operate in the world's wisdom, we are operating in demonic wisdom. When we operate in a natural, fleshly way, we are operating in a demonic way. Now, James is not suggesting, I want to point out, that you blame Satan for these arguments or for these problems. It's not like you can walk around saying the devil made me do it as people love to say. It's the discord and the evil and all of the rest traces back to the sin of Satan in the throne room, the sin of the pride that he exhibited, and then that that flows into the garden where he brought Adam down and Adam's pride in trying to be God. All of that is the origin of the thinking that we now have in the world today, of an independent thinking that we can be like him and not trusting in him. And in that way, he says, when you do these things, when we do these things, we act in a way that finds its origins in the sin of Satan's pride. It's demonic. So, if you seek out that role with selfish ambition and arrogance, you're not acting in a godly way, you're actually acting in a satanic way. And then James says we lie against the truth. That's a very interesting phrase. He says, the truth. The truth here is the gospel. He says we lie against the gospel when we live this way. How do you lie against the gospel when you do these things? Well, it's because we might be speaking the truth, we might be speaking the gospel to people, but then our sinful arrogance, our selfishness, tears down the gospel by our actions. It's the old saying that I can't hear what you're saying because your actions are speaking too loudly. That's the problem. That's how, when we do these things, we lie against the gospel. We're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk. So think of it from an unbeliever's point of view. Someone who's evaluating our message and trying to make sense of it, and they're seeing us as the messenger, as the ambassador of Christ, and they hear our words, they watch our sinful actions. I mean, how many unbelievers have you heard raise the concern of what they see in Christians, in the churches particularly, the fights, the disagreements, even just the fact that there's a thousand denominations? All of that becomes argument for them to undermine or to invalidate the gospel message. That's not to say they have a legitimate excuse come judgment day, but it's simply to point out the fact that our witness becomes a lie against the truth we speak with our mouth. So James says true godly wisdom comes from above and it will yield a different set of behaviors. I want to focus in on these behaviors here because out of this lesson comes an opportunity for us to evaluate both teaching and teachers. First, he says that when you're looking at someone operating in the wisdom from above as a teacher or as any Christian who is presenting God's wisdom. First, he says, it will be pure. What pure here means, literally, is uncontaminated. And what I think he means, most obviously from the context, is you'll be looking at someone whose teaching is uncontaminated by fleshly, sinful desires and ambitions. If we feel a calling to teach God's people in some context, or lead in that capacity, we can know if it is truly a godly calling by simply testing our own ambitions about it. What is it we seek to do or gain out of the teaching? Am I as excited to teach a class of three as a class of 300? If I'm not, then my ambitions are probably not pure. Or am I as fulfilled by coming to an understanding of God's truth in an accurate way and then sharing it with one other person? Or do I have to have a crowd in order to share what I've learned? Or do I feel jealousy when another teacher finds something in Scripture that I didn't find myself? 
Or am I ever tempted to take what they find and claim it as if it were my own discovery? Or can I be willing to change my mind about what I believe when God brings a better interpretation through another teacher? Do I have a teachable heart when I strive to teach others? Those are the standards, I think, that ultimately are measures of whether or not the the intention or the ambition is pure or whether it's coming out of some kind of selfish purpose. Godly wisdom, James says, will always come from above, will always come with a purity of spirit that removes personal ambition and makes God's glory and his word the focus entirely. That's the purity of what he looks for in teaching. And then following from a pure motive, he says in verse 17, then we will speak in a peaceable, gentle, reasonable way. So here's your second test. First test in in evaluating yourself or other teachers is what's their motive? What do they really want to get out of it? Second thing, though, is what's their style? Now, there's a lot of different styles. There's the long and boring. That's the school that I happen to be a part of. And there's differences in, in whether someone's in the text or whether they're using topical. Or The point is there are natural differences in style. We can accept that. But apart from purely stylistic issues, James is talking here about something a little more fundamental, a little more important. He's saying they ought to speak or teach in peaceable ways, gentle and reasonable. The teaching should not be pushy or arrogant or entrenched or defensive or angry, or confrontational. I mean, those things aren't necessary. If I'm trying to impress upon you the truth of God's word, and yet I feel the need to bring it to you in one of those ways, defensive, entrenched, angry, confrontational, then either I don't trust the power of God's word to do its work without my help, or the spirit in which I'm teaching is not one from above, but something else. Because there's no need for ever God's word to be presented in any of those ways. There is a righteous anger and there are times when we need to be focused on what we believe and and, and sure to what we believe. But that doesn't mean that we have to teach others from that point of view. Rather, it's going to be, James says, full of mercy and good fruits. So this is your third way to understand who to listen to or how to evaluate someone as a teacher. A teacher, James says, speaks in a perspective of God's mercy and God's grace. Grace filled. In the way I try to teach scripture, my first thought is to run to grace as I look at the text. An evidence of God's grace, a proof of God's grace, an example of God's grace. Something in the text should be an example of God in mercy and in grace. That is not to say you cannot address the fact that there is judgment as well and that God is a God of both mercy and justice. And so those things have to be balanced because they're in the text. But the thrust of it should be on the mercy of God as evidenced in the grace of God through the victory on the cross. That's the message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And then the fruit of that person's teaching is the ultimate measure. The fruit. First, the fruit refers to the life of the teacher. What does their own walk look like? In their own life, is the teacher the kind of man who lives out what he says? Is he the kind of man or woman who calls others to do the same based on Scripture? Is his home life a godly home life? Are his children respectful and obedient? Does he exhibit in his life and all those he influences directly the manifestation of that grace and mercy and wisdom in his life? Or is there a huge disconnect between what he says and how he lives his life? No one's perfect, and these aren't standards that are supposed to be measured at such a finite level that they give no room for error in someone's life. That's not the expectation. But it is a summation of their life. It should be holistically. What does their life look like? 
Bible gives us these tests because they tell us whether a man's teaching is rooted in the wisdom given from above or a false wisdom that originates from a selfish, fleshly desire. And I've met many people who hear teaching, they, they're receiving it, and it's changing their life. And so in some cases it leads them to say, well, I want to provide that same blessing to someone else. I want to be a teacher to someone else. How do I become a teacher, Steve? Or can you help me become a teacher? And my first concern when I hear that is, why? And I'm looking to see, in some cases, do they just want the spotlight? Is this about them gaining the attention that comes to someone who teaches? That's the first concern I have. And then the second concern I have is, well, let me see how your knowledge of Scripture has impacted your own life. And do I see in that person's life something that tells me that they are not just talking the talk, they walk the walk? And James says, finally, look at the fruit of their ministry as a whole. The ministry itself. Look at that person's life and their ministry and ask yourself, does the ministry bear good fruit? Because that's the ultimate proof of whether God is in that ministry or not. So when they teach, is their teaching changing lives? Are men and women brought to faith? Are families and marriages restored? Are hearts strengthened to serve the Lord? Or does that teacher, wherever they go, bring discord and factions and disputes or just ambivalence? If that's the fruit of their ministry, then I'd have a question about what their ministry is really doing. I mean, these are hard tests, but honestly, don't you want to be sure about this stuff? I think about how hard we vet our doctors or our lawyers or our teachers in schools that our kids go to. I mean, we worry a lot about whether these people are the people we want to entrust our kids to or our own lives to. And then we walk into churches or we listen to people on the radio or TV and we don't even give a second thought sometimes if we're not careful. That's dangerous. That's not the biblical expectation. James is saying these people need to be vetted by who they are and what they do and how they influence the world, not just by what they say. And then finally, he says, a teacher operating with wisdom from above will remain unwavering in their presentation of the truth. Unwavering here refers to teaching without prejudice or partiality. It doesn't mean unteachable. It's different than being unteachable. I can be unwavering and yet remain teachable so long as my changing views are always informed from Scripture and are not based on some current fad. So, for example, I am not wavering on what I believe Scripture says until some point at which Scripture itself tells me, mm, Steve, you didn't quite have that one right. And then I move to where Scripture moves me. And then I'm unwavering from that point. But someone who wavers is the kind of person who says, well, Scripture says this, but you know, when I go speak at this audience, they don't like that. So I'm not going to teach them that. And then they go to a different audience who happens to like that, so then they say, well, now I'll teach it. That's wavering. That's letting the audience and their desires change what you say. That's not what James says we should do. We are unwavering in the truth, but we're teachable out of Scripture. It takes a strong Christian, in my opinion and in my experience, to admit that they can be wrong at times about Scripture or about their teaching in the past. I've been brought to that humble moment many times. My problem is it's all recorded. So then I've got... Then I've got this legacy out there that I, that I have to struggle with. Well, do I just delete it all or do I leave it out there until I can get around to reteaching it and fix the stuff that was wrong? There's not enough hours in the day to reteach everything I've done wrong. I have to trust God will make sense of it somehow for somebody, you know. But that is an issue. The issue is you have to be teachable enough to keep moving and growing in your own walk. A teacher can't be approved by the world or by carnal members of his audience. Otherwise, then he just wavers and goes wherever the audience goes. That leads him into chapter 4, which is a chapter talking about the temptation of seeking the world's acceptance. And this, my friends, in my opinion, is probably the most current 
contemporary chapter in the book because so much of what the church is doing today, in my opinion, falls directly into this trap of seeking the world's acceptance. Look at verse 1. He says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So we know already the church is quarreling. He's already made that point. And then James asks the obvious question. Why do you have these problems? Why are you quarreling? What's the source of all this conflict? Presumably it was conflict between teachers or between people who wanted to have leadership, but maybe there was other kinds of conflict too. He says, why are you having all these conflicts? He says, it isn't from God. It isn't proper. It's not a natural product of faith. Here's another way to say it. It's not a given or not, it's not supposed to be the case that a church has quarrels. You ever heard it said, right, church would be so much easier if it weren't for all the people or, you know, some little glib way of saying it's always the natural thing. You know, uh, the other way I've heard it said is, well, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because then you'll just ruin it. And you ever heard those statements, right? It's all to say the same thing. Church is full of people. We're imperfect. So we just got to be used to the fact that church atmosphere will include a lot of nastiness that just comes from people. Nonsense. I mean, if that's it, let's just join the community club. Let's just join our country club. Let's just join. What difference does it make? If we're going to live just like the rest of the world. That is nonsense. Now, it is true that there is always going to be sin in this body because the sin is the natural part of who we are. But that doesn't mean we give into it or accept it or call it normal or, or what we want. I mean, that's just showing you how far we have to go. He says, what is the source? The source here is you. It is our flesh and more specifically, our fleshly desires for worldly things, for worldly pleasure. The source for the quarreling in the body of Christ is sinful flesh. And this is a 100% true principle in my experience. I have been invited to numerous different groups and churches from time to time. And and often, as it was the case when I showed up here, I was invited to a church because they didn't have a pastor. And so they were trying to understand how to get over that that gap. And, And in some cases, and not in every case, you show up in that setting and you find quarrels. Maybe they are the quarrels that resulted in the pastor leaving. Maybe there are quarrels that, are, that have started because the pastor left. Maybe there were quarrels that were there all along. And I can always trace those quarrels back to some kind of fleshly, sinful desire rooted in a worldly value. If I look for it long enough, it's inevitable. You will always find that to be the answer. Somebody wants something that they're not getting, and what they want is something that is rooted in a worldly view, a worldly pleasure. I deserve something. I should have something. The church should be something that it's not. It should do something that it's not doing. But when you really trace it down, you say, well, where do you get that need from or that desire from? And it's worldly. It's because the world does it. It's because that's what the world values. It's because that's what we think the world wants. And James here doesn't name the specific worldly pleasure that these believers are seeking after. Instead, he uses the opportunity to to describe the general pattern that people fall into, this worsening chain of events that lead to the quarrels in the church. So if you're like me and you would prefer to be in a church body without quarreling, then here's our opportunity to see it for what it is, and when it shows up, put a stop to it. So first, James says, we lust. We lust. The lust means a sinful craving of the flesh. And it might be a craving for attention or fame or wealth or power or control or being liked. 
I mean, you name it, right? We have lusts for any number of things. And those lusts start the process. We've already learned at, a, at an earlier point in the study that Jewish teaching or, or Jewish rabbis would likely receive as a result of their role some kind of respectful largesse. Sometimes it's just in the form of praise. Sometimes it was a title. It was often also the case that they received income because they were a rabbi or gratuitous kinds of gifts along the way. You know, they were treated in a special way. So if that's the thing you want, you know, I want to be a rabbi because I want the attention or I want to be a rabbi because I want the praise in the streets or I want the, the, the little gifts that come my way from everybody. Well, that's the lust. That's where it started. Lust. Rather than seeking a heavenly reward for simply serving God as a teacher, the real reason they want the job in the case of a teacher is that they want that kind of attention. So that's maybe an example of where it starts. Let's use that one as the example. But you could make a hundred others, right? And then James says this lust leads to murder. Now, you're looking at that and you're thinking, I can't remember the last time I saw someone murder someone else in the church over a building campaign. Although, maybe it's happened. I don't know. And I think in extreme cases, it could be literally true, but that's clearly not the common case. He's talking here about murder in the same way Jesus did in chapter 5 of Matthew, when he equated hatred in our hearts to murder. And that's his point. He's trying to use the point of murder to make it clear how serious it is, how ungodly it is when we have this kind of hatred for someone else. But he's saying sinful desires lead to sinful thoughts directed against whoever is standing in the way of us getting what we want. The pastor, the elders, the other person who's competing for the same job, the other person on the building committee who wants the building smaller than we do. We start having hateful thoughts directed at them because they're standing in the way of what we want. That's murder in the sense of how God perceives that sin. That's the kind of quarreling that he's been talking about, I would argue, all the way back into chapter 3. James says, you do not have these things. You don't have these things you're seeking, these sinful, lustly desires. You don't have them, he says, because you don't ask. Now, in the context of his teaching here, it's clear what they wanted, at least in part. They wanted to be a teacher or a leader or some other ambition or desire that they had developed from a lust. And James says... They haven't asked for that thing they want, which means they had not prayed to God. They had not sought his will and asked him to grant them this thing. In Greek here, the verb tense is a continuous verb tense, continuous action. So another way to say it is they are continually not asking God for these things that they're fighting over. But rather, they're taking matters into their own hands. So a desire or lust begins this downward series of steps through sinful thoughts Sinful actions, all done in an effort to gain something that they want in their own power. Never during any of that time did they stop and say, you know, maybe we ought to ask God if that's what he wants us to have or if that's what I can have. And then he says in the next verse, even when they do resort to prayer in some cases, they ask and don't receive because they ask with wrong motives. The word wrong motives in Greek is literally in evil. They ask in evil. And their motive, he says, is to spend what they receive on pleasures. And that is the same phrase used to describe the way the prodigal son took his inheritance and squandered it when he ran away from his father. That's the same Greek phrase. So I don't think James is speaking here strictly about spending in the case of money. It's not just strictly, oh, you asked for money and I'm not going to give it to you because if you get it, you're just going to spend it on yourself in the wrong way. That's one way it can happen. But he's talking here about generally wasting God's provision in satisfying our flesh. Would you expect God to honor that kind of a request anyway? Would we naturally expect that? If we come to God 
with a desire for something that's based in a lustful, sinful desire, and we say, God, make me the teacher, make me the leader, or give me a chance to have this opportunity. And he knows and we know that in our heart, the only reason we want it is because it feeds some sinful desire. Do you think he's going to give that to us? Would, Would that make any sense? I don't know why he would. A good and loving father wouldn't do that. So he says no. Now, one thing to understand about this verse, how many of you have heard these verses in James pulled out of context and discussed in the context of how to pray? It's classically done in my experience. Here's how you pray. You've got to ask, but you've got to ask with the right motives. And, and then they typically go another step and say, you've got to ask in faith and ask that he will, he will give you what you want. And if you do that, you'll get it. Well, that's not at all what this text is about. He is not, James is not in the middle here of a lesson on prayer. That's not his point. Prayer is really just something he makes as a point in passing, talking about a larger issue. But there is a mini lesson here, a kind of small little point to be made on the topic of prayer. But it's only the one James himself makes. And what is the point James makes? When we ask for something with an evil desire or motive, we should expect God to say no to that request. That's the end of the lesson. That's it. You can't take that truth and turn it backwards in an attempt to create some second principle for how you do get things from God. You can't say that when we ask with sincere motives, for example, we're guaranteed that God will give us what we want. You see how you can turn it backwards? That is not what he said. It doesn't work that way. You might ask with the most sincere motive possible, and you still may not get what you're asking for because God has some other reason that he doesn't want to give it to you. You see how you can turn something backwards and it stops being true? So just because evil motives don't get you anything doesn't mean sincere motives will always get you something. That's bad logic and it's unbiblical. False teachers I've heard try to come to this verse and use it to explain in some cases why somebody doesn't get what they want. And it's often done in the context of health issues. And sadly, it's a real, it's, it's, it's such a misuse of scripture and it's so hurtful when people do this. And the classic example of someone who's, who's got a terminal illness or some other kind of serious illness, they prayed for the healing, it doesn't happen, and then somebody will come along pointing to verses like this and say, well, you must have had evil motives. That does not follow logically or biblically from the text. They may have had perfect motives, but God has some greater purpose in what's happening in their life. Now, rather than move into a long discussion on prayer, James drops the point at this moment And he's interested in a larger problem. And we're going to finish on two verses today. In four, he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made us made to dwell in us. This is a a lesson drawn from the Old Testament. And the lesson is. God is a jealous God, and he does not share us with the world. We are either friends with God or we are friends with the world. You can't seek after the world's values. Remember, world is equated to natural, is equated to satanic. You can't seek after the world's values and at the same time expect to lead a life that pleases God. They're incompatible. In fact, they're so incompatible that James says, if we try to have a good relationship with the world, we're actually cheating cheating on our relationship with God. That's why he calls us adulteresses. That the relationship we've established in the new covenant with God is so important to God that if we choose to make the world our friend, we become an enemy of God, he says. An enemy of God. 
in the way we've chosen to forsake him. How sad is it that James's counsel for the first century church is so relevant for today? I mean, isn't it a shame that after 2,000 years of church history and the New Testament writings and the guidance of the Spirit, that we haven't moved beyond this in many cases? How many churches have you seen are in turmoil because people in those churches repeat exactly these same errors? They seek to display their godly wisdom through speech rather than through actions. They rely on an earthly source for their thinking. They display a life of sin because it's built upon the world's wisdom. They give in to their fleshly lusts. They seek after worldly pleasures, even to the point of asking God for opportunities to bless them and feed their earthly desires. And then, of course, they quarrel with one another. They hate one another. And through all of this, their actions lie against the truth. I hope that James's letter at least causes us in here to reflect on our own motives and behaviors. And not because I feel like as a church body here, we are... Uh, the example of the day, I don't believe that we are, for the most part, falling into this trap, at least not in my experience, but we're certainly not free of it either, right? No one is. So the opportunity is still there to check our motives, to check our source for wisdom, to, to concern ourselves with whether we seek after the pleasures of the world and we line ourselves with those motives, and then recognize that when we do those things, we lie against the very gospel we say we want to project. Actions speak louder than words, James would say. But we'll finish there. Father, whether we all seek, as James talks about, to be teachers or to be leaders, that's not perhaps our individual goals, Father. But I pray that as we've studied in your word this morning, that you have brought to each of our minds those particular desires that we each may have, those unique things that we have asked for and, and desire to do or to, to have in, in service to you in some context. And I ask, Father, that with each of those desires we have, bring to mind, Father, our motives and our desires. Cause us to think through them once more and to verify that we are serving in a true desire to magnify your name and to glorify your name, not out of some selfish ambition. Perhaps even, Father, a desire or a reluctance to serve in the first place could be out of a selfish ambition, a selfish ambition to remain unbothered, uncommitted, untroubled by the need to serve others. Perhaps even that, Father, might be the motive that we need to be reckoning with. But whether it is a motive to serve for the wrong reasons or to not serve at all, Father, we do ask that you would impress upon our hearts the importance of of showing the gospel in our deeds, in humility, not with arrogance, in a trust that we are resting in the wisdom from above, not that from here, not that from below. And Father, I pray, as as I know each member of this body does, I pray, Father, that when we live up to these expectations, rather than lie against the truth, we would affirm it in the hearts of men and women. You would use it for that purpose. You would draw men to yourself through us in some way. And then perhaps as well, Father, let us lead them to this body of, of believers for the sake of their worship and their growth. If only because we enjoy their company and we benefit from their gifts and we desire, Father, to grow both in spirit and in number, but in all cases, Father, to your glory. Thank you, Lord, again for the study of James. Help us complete it with the stamina that we brought to it in the first place. Let us continue to listen intently and put it to work. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.